Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkran, and today I have the distinct pleasure of speaking with Dr. Christopher Key Chapel, who is the Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology, and also the, the Director of the Master of Arts in Yoga Studies program at Loyola Marymount University. Uh, Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Very good to be back again. Thank you. Um, You're most welcome. Uh, Today we get to talk about a fascinating, fascinating um, um, publication that you edited, uh, Yoga in Jainism. Um, That may be a surprising title to some, but that's precisely why we have this this broader brand of of, of new books in Indian religions, so we can understand the whole gamut of what one thinks of as Hinduism versus Buddhism versus Jainism. And works like this really show the interplay of all of these traditions in the Indian subcontinent. So it really is a pleasure to be featuring this work uh, at this time in the podcast. Do you, want to, do you want to tell us sort of how this project came about? Yeah, I met Dr. Natmal Tatya both in terms of learning about his books, but also meeting him in person in the 1980s. And in his 1951 book, Studies in Jain Philosophy, he included a segment that I found absolutely fascinating about the practice of yoga within the Jain tradition. So I went to the LD Institute and found primary sources, started translating, and then gathered folks together on several occasions in India and in London to have conversations about how this tradition that we come to think of as Patanjali and then later Hatha Yoga, how this tradition has intersected with Jain tradition. And it was remarkable from a personal perspective that the overlay, and I remember having a conversation with none other than Dr. Gerald Larson many decades ago. And he said, really? What the Jains do in the Acharanga Sutra is the same thing that the yogis do with the practice of the yamas? And then the descriptions of karma are very Jain-like within Yoga Sutra. So we see clearly a borrowing from Patanjali, bringing in stuff from uh, Jain practice. And then eventually we see an articulation of Jainism in a new way. And as recently as the fourth century, whenever they would use the word yoga, it was not a good thing. It would be about the stickiness of the karmas covering up the soul. And they were very specific that, no, we don't want yoga. We want a yoga. We want no yoga. 
And then the conversation shifted around the sixth century and one of the very early Jain philosophers to include conversations employing the technical term yoga as spiritual practice was Haribhadra Virahanka. And he wrote a wonderful, beautiful text called the Yoga Bindu in which he outlines how yoga must be seen as a universal endeavor. And he brings in the Buddhist perspectives, he brings in the Advaita Vedanta perspectives, he brings in the Jain perspectives, puts them in conversation, and bottom line says that the problem with the world, the problem with the human person is that they are stuck due to unhealthy karmas. They need to release those karmas through whatever means. And it's really quite remarkable in the sixth century's text, he gives details on how to retrieve past memories. He gives details on how to do dream work. He gives details about how to do puja, why to do puja, when to do puja. He gives very specific details on the recitation of mantra and the performance of japa and lays out all of these avenues that result in the purification of karma. So this text, uh, again, very early, uh, not only for uh, the giant articulation of yoga, but it's also an early record of how religions were being practiced in day-to-day -day life in the sixth century in India. And then another Haribhadra comes along and his name was Haribhadra Yakani Putra, a couple hundred years later. And he was responding with a little bit of distaste to the happenings in India vis-a-vis -vis Tantra and has a real trenchant critique of certain Tantric practices as well as lining up the Yoga Eightfold Path of Patanjali with correlate ideas from Gunastana language, which is the progressive 14-fold ladder toward freedom. And he also invokes Advaita Vedanta language vis-a-vis -vis yoga, as well as Buddhist language vis-a-vis -vis yoga. It's a fascinating text that offers one of the early doxographies that is um, roadmaps of how systems parallel one another and how they diverge from one another. And then a couple of centuries, two, three centuries later, we get another great scholar, also probably from Northwest India, called uh, Hemachandra. And he writes this massive work. It's been translated by Uli Kwanstrom, massive work called the Yoga Shastra that, again, step-by-step step goes through Patanjali, step-by-step step says, yeah, this is how we do this in our tradition, and then introduces mantra and yantra meditative practices, borrowing in from another slightly early, earlier scholar called um, Shubhachandra, who wrote a text called the Gyanarnava, and we find a full marriage of 
the internal meditations, the external behaviors, all in the name of yoga. So when these um, texts and these traditions became known to me, I began to meet with scholars, starting with Nabaltakya himself and so many others, uh, gathering for conferences in India and in London as well. And the result was this um, edited volume that is just sort of pointing in the direction of the need for further research. It really is a rich and um, um, fascinating work. And, and as I mentioned, really apropos the space we are creating on the podcast to convey um, this ecosystem, this Indic ecosystem that, um, that, that really defies ultimate, um, ultimate uh, distinction along the lines through which we typically understand most of this religious phenomenon. For example, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism, um, yoga, tantra, and so um, if you can give us sort of um, a thirty thousand foot view, you know, how do you understand either through the lens of 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 one of these figures or through the lens of presently on the ground, how do you understand the relationship between, for example, Hinduism, um, Jainism, yoga, or let's just say there's a listener in this podcast and they're like, hey, I was taught that yoga is one of the, 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 the orthodox dashinas, one of the six, you know, true Hindu orthodox dashinas. And then wasn't Jainism one of those heterodox dashinas that broke away and like, you know, everything Dr. Raj taught me in intro Hinduism was wrong. So <laughs> what would you say to such a one? Yeah, no, it's fascinating. And it's both sort of a, a classical historical question and it remains a contemporary question. And there are perceptions and misperceptions, characterizations and mischaracterizations from so many different angles. And part of the reason why my own professorship is called, um, I'm the Doshi Professor of Indic Traditions, is because there are these permeable boundaries between traditions. And one really gets a sense that when what we call Hinduism arose, it was in full conversation. We know go, going all the way back to the Rig Veda that there were vratyas called out, people who took vows who clearly had um, interesting lifestyles of total nudity, of not cutting their hair, and that these were other people, but that they were interesting, probably in a way that the Mughals later became interested because they became fascinated with yogis and the peers, the, the Sufi saints, and the yogis, we have beautiful paintings, miniature paintings from four or 500 years ago of these people in conversation with one another. So without being soft in terms of wanting to overgeneralize, which is, is really never a good idea for a whole variety of reasons, I think it can be fairly clearly and accurately stated 
that there is this call to a supreme, to a transcendent, to what we might think of as param artha, which would be a higher sense of meaning or purpose that can be used as a, a little bit of a roadmap or a diagram for how these traditions hold at least one thing in common. And that one thing is how do we, as human beings, strive to be our best self? And there's an agreement from the very beginning and the agreement can be found in Ahimsa Satya Esteya Brahmacharya Parigraha. And the idea is that in order to live the good life, you have to live a good life. And that means that not going around killing things, not lying to people, not cheating people, not sexually abusing people, not just, and this is the great modernist, globalist, consumerist challenge, not just merely going around getting a lot of stuff, okay, that we need to work on a sense of how can we become our best self. And it starts with ethics. And it also includes meditation. And in the Jain texts, in the Buddhist texts, in the yoga texts, in the Hindu texts, we have very specific instructions about developing smriti, about developing mindfulness, about developing samprajñata, the ability to stick with the topic and focus the mind and also to, regardless of where it lands within the vocabulary of a particular tradition, to be able to land in a place that the Advaitins call Nirguna Brahma, that the Jains refer to as Ayoga, disconnection from karma, that the Buddhists call Shunyata, that place of surrender and release. And those categories are shared in common. And at different points in history, scholars such as those that I've named, Haribhadra, Hemachandra, and later Yashavijaya, have lined up the parallels and said, I think we can get along on these issues. It's, it's really fascinating. Um, I think I mentioned to you in a previous conversation that um, one of my favorite metaphors for teaching Indic religion is, is as a jungle, an ecosystem with all these various flora and fauna that correlate and, and cross-pollinate. Um, I mean, it can be viewed as disparate, but, but, but uh, indelibly interconnected at the same time. Um, another uh, sort of, at the risk of oversimplifying, another sort of trope that, that comes to mind that I often share is this dharmic double helix, like, uh, like Dharma is obviously multivalent, like, uh, complex, um, and dynamic over time. But there seems to be this, these, it's sort of bipedal. There's, there's, a, there's the Dharma of the outer life and the Dharma of the inner life. And when it comes to this Dharma of the inner life, uh, by virtue of the precepts that you've named, really, um, there's so much overlap between what we may think of as heterodox or orthodox traditions. And I find that so fascinating. Um, um, uh, um, in terms of 
three of those specific um, um, precepts, moral precepts, you say something very interesting. Uh, I believe it was the concluding chapter of the book uh, in terms of three A's of, 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 of Jainism and um, without putting words in your mouth, perhaps what makes, um, really what allows for this rich overlap between Jainism and yoga. Do you want to say a bit about that? Yeah, and I also want to highlight from the book itself that we're dealing with modernity, and I guess we really live in post-modernity now, so that's certainly there. We're dealing with the antique. We're dealing with issues that come from long, long ago, and we're also going through a survey of how, over the course of centuries, interpretations morphed, how ideas changed, and how even vocabulary changes. And in the modern period, three words that begin with A have been lifted up just in the last 20 years by contemporary giant thinkers that encapsulate for them the great contribution for the modern and postmodern period. And the first, is the one most closely identified with Jain thought and practice, and that is ahimsa. This is nonviolence, the desire to do no harm. And with nonviolence, we have immediate connections that bring people into remembrance of not only Mahatma Gandhi, but Emerson and Thoreau, Quaker tradition from the West. And then we have this idea of the Jain monk, the Jain nun, taking this to an extreme. And what the lay leaders have done within Jainism is say, no, we need to teach our young people about how this is just the best way to live. The benefits of vegetarianism, which are now confirmed in all sorts of studies, the benefits of using one's words instead of just allowing the emotions to run, run crazy and wild, okay, that this is important. Number two, aparigraha, and aparigraha, okay, graha means to grasp, parigraha means to grasp a lot, and a uh means to cease and desist. And for the giant monks and nuns, they've perfected a lifestyle, and there are tens of thousands of giant monks and nuns in India. They have perfected a lifestyle where they take only the minimum. And on the one hand, it's the most extreme commitment. It, on the part of Degumbra, monks and nuns requires total nudity. It requires, regardless of, um, of gotch or of community, that you no longer cook for yourself. You only survive through food given directly sometimes into your hands through the generosity of others. So that's like the most extreme religion we can ever imagine. And it becomes a way for lay people to reconsider their actual needs. 
So the frugality is rather significant within Jain tradition, as well as the philanthropy. So philanthropy becomes the remarkable gateway towards self-purification through adherence to Apar Vigraha. And in the United States, there is a project afoot, and it's almost halfway there within only two or three short years of creating funded physicians for the study of Jainism inspired by this principle of Aparigraha. Then the third is the philosophical. And here we're you know, sort of not in a Himsa Satya Stay of Brahmacharya Parigraha. We took the first and the last of those, and then we're doing Jain philosophy. And with Jain philosophy, they say, on a kanta. No one person can have the final word. No one view can account for all occurrences. So rather than saying Advaita, rather than saying, oh, it's not two, it's really all one, what Jainism asserts from really day one is that there exists a multiplicity of souls and that every soul, every being holds a unique perspective. And that to adhere to ahimsa, we must give space for those perspectives within, of course, reason. But this commitment to the multiple is, I think, rather unparalleled. And I see it play out in the culture in so, so many different ways. And part of putting the book together was so exciting because we were able to include lots of different voices from different generations, from different methodological styles. And as you were saying about the metaphor of the jungle is, you know, you can't understand what's going on in India without knowing some philosophy, without knowing how ritual works, without knowing the underlying ethics, without knowing the sociology of it all. So yeah, and the Jains are multivalent in their approach to knowledge. Well, you've actually preempted my next question, which was um, essentially um, around the, 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 the various types of projects we have. Uh, if you want to say a word in terms of how they're grouped or the trajectory or however you want to um, divide or describe them, but it'd be great to, to just touch on each to, so as to give listeners in various subfields um, uh, using various methodologies sort of to give them um, a sense of the, 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 the value of this volume. Yeah, so um, about 70 years ago in India, actually probably 80 or 90 years ago, there was a, a move to create a wellspring for Jain studies. And many people, not necessarily of Jain birth, were recruited into academies and universities to translate and to really do philosophy from Jain perspective. 
And we were fortunate to include two of these scholars. One is no more, Sagar Meljain and Kamal Chand Sogani. And Sagar Meljain from Parshma Vidyapit in Benares. And um, Dr. Sogani from uh, Jaipur University, Rajasthan University. were of the remarkable group of scholars like Nabil who I had mentioned earlier, who had studied their Prakrit, who had studied their Pali, who had studied their Sanskrit, who grew up during the period of the British Raj, have impeccable command over the English language, better than my own command, and who were so elegantly trained in so many disciplines. And both of these scholars have chapters in this book that give us a sense of their comprehensive, long view knowledge. And in the case of Dr. Sogani, he was in direct conversation with William James and Evelyn Underhill, which uh, just brought joy to my heart as I sat with Dr. Sogani and I get to see him periodically even now. And what he's doing is constructive theology. And we were able to take his book from so many decades ago and um, bring the quintessence of it into this remarkable chapter that goes step by step through the yogas of Jainism from a universal perspective. Then we have other more contemporary scholars who have um, gone into, I'll say, the nitty-gritty of the philology. And Jayendra Soni, the president of the World Sanskrit um, Group, uh, has written about how yoga gets used in the Tavarta Sutra, where you know it's really a yoga. You, you don't want yoga, you want getting rid of karma in the Tavarta Sutra. And he's very clear on that. Johannes Bronkhorst, similarly taking um, a very granular topic on Sankhya um, and the soul uh, vis-a-vis Kundakunda. And Kundakunda, a very early Jain philosopher who was uh, giving voice to spirituality in a way akin to yoga, not quite using the word yoga, but in this um, way of examining, interrogating text and drawing connections. And similarly, from a philological point of view, we have Piotr Baselowicz from Poland, who looked at yogi pratyaksha. And in Jain traditions going way back, you have to develop this place of vision called Sarvajnya, which means that you really see everything. You become omniscient. And he unpacks that vis-a-vis normal perception and uh, the possibility philosophically, can this really happen? Does the great Jain yogi truly know everything? And then in my own contributions to this, I. Um, so we do a little bit of a blend of what the philologists have done and do a, a start to introduce some sociological categories and say, how can we understand what the tantricas were doing 
through the prism of giant categories. And similarly, we have Coley uh, Quadstrom, uh, Lund University, talking about yoga as expressed by Hemachandra some thousand years ago. And then we get into what we might call the early modern, the late medieval period. And Jeff Long, a great scholar, uh, did his PhD at Chicago on Anakantvada, on multiple viewpoints from Jain perspective, looks at Yashavijaya two, 300 years ago, writing extensive treatises on practices of Patanjali yoga vis-a-vis meditative practices and ethical practices within Jain yoga, and John Court, the great scholar and savant of all things Jain, has interrogated the Degumbara hymns that, again, three, four hundred years ago, a little bit earlier, a little bit more recent, call out for when will I find the great yogi? And the yogi becomes the trope for the accomplished acharya, the accomplished example of what is possible. And John is such a, a very fine translator that I, I really enjoyed hearing him when we were together in London and then again reading what he has put together. And then I bring it completely into the contemporary. And there was a great scholar, Mahapragya Acharya of the Tarapanti Svetambara denomination in Western Rajasthan probably the largest single denomination of Jain monks and nuns today. And Mahapragya, going back to research in the 1970s and drawing from his relationship with Mr. Goenka, who had brought the whole mindfulness practice to the world as he had learned it in Southeast Asia, he developed, Mahapragya developed a system of meditation known as Prekshadyan, and this is now taught by Terrapuntis all over the world. And we have two scholars, Andrea Jane, well known for her work on selling yoga and contemporary forms of yoga, but that book opens with the discussion of Prekshadyan. And then Smita Kotari, who did her PhD drawing from active participation in Prekshadyan camps in India. And then my final chapter includes my reflections on being with contemporary Jain teachers such as Mahapragya and Shivkumar Muni, who teaches a wonderful meditation. I've been on retreat with him where he takes that, it's almost like the Kena Upanishad and Shankara and our wonderful friend Ramana Maharshi and he has you sit for a good long couple of hours in the morning saying, Koham, 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 who am I? And then in the afternoon, you turn to Soham. That, no, I really am the best self. So bring it right up into the moment and include descriptions of contemporary places of pilgrimage as well as highlight these contemporary teachers, male and female, of Jain yoga today. 
What do you think might most benefit from or be interested in this volume, either in terms of subfields of the academy or in terms of uh, folks, uh, interested lay people? What do you think this might be for? Yeah, I think it's really for both. For scholars, it's an invitation to be playful, to take your language skills and just your observational skills and put them together. It's also for perhaps devotees of Prekshadyan who want to know the context for what they practice. And it's also for, in small doses, those who want just a general introduction to the spirituality of Jain traditions. And some scholars get so abstract and so um, speculative about argumentation that they might lose that, that texture that, no, this is a living, breathing practice. And I remember being with Pabhanav Jaini, who inspired so many of us. And the history of Jain studies is that Morris Bloomfield, who had famously translated the Rig Veda, had back you know, more than 100 years ago devoted himself to Jain narratives and taught two people um, who really didn't do, okay, W. Norman Brown was one of his great students who did some in Jainism, but didn't make it his focus. And the other was um, uh, Mrs. Sinclair, who did her doctorate and then made this massive translation of Jane narrative literature some you know, 80, 90 years ago, she never became a college professor. So it just sort of stopped. And it wasn't until Pabhanap Jaini, a scholar of Buddhism, published the book, The Jain Path of Purification in 1979, that the discipline arrived in the United States. And John Court uh, did an early dissertation on Jain practice out of Harvard University. Now there are dozens and there are so many openings for people that are qualified to teach Jainism. And I think that this book helps show a little bit of that history of connectivity and has uh, in a way of approaching this that is methodologically diverse. And I think as a scholar that we all have to be open to multiple approaches. I had the good fortune of, of hearing uh, Padmanabh S. Janey speak um, a few times while at the uh, International um, uh, Summer School of Jane Studies. I believe this was 2008. Um, it's just, just such a rich experience studying Jainism on the ground in its context. Um, it, it's clear that um, it's clear that in addition to being a, uh, a fine scholar of, of, of Indic traditions, uh, Jainism, Hinduism, yoga, uh, however you want to call that, that ecosystem, it, it's clear that um, to me anyhow, that embodied experience, lived tradition is, is of value to you. Um, would you say a bit about that? I know we've talked about that in previous podcasts, but there may be a number of listeners who may not have caught that one or, or it wasn't foregrounded in, as it is now. But can you tell us a little bit about um, 
in your view, the importance of direct embodied experience, um, 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 maybe both as a scholar and beyond, you know, as uh, this is meant to be generative, not, not uh, confining. So answer as, as you feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, I first want to lift up my positionality as a professor of theology. And that means from our mission statement of the university, we are very concerned with the service of faith and the promotion of justice. Not all universities have that intent. So I have been given free reign to look at faith in all of its manifestations, that's my job. And I've been also empowered in a very good way to consistently lift up issues of justice. And therefore, in the classroom, but also in the scholarship, there is something at stake that's far more than just going out and getting a job. And we have a great engineering school. We have a great film and television school. We have a great business school. And every single of those students has to do a mini minor in philosophy and theology, regardless of discipline. So I come from the real world. And as a very young person, I got enthralled with what India opened for me. And I studied for many years with a woman from Calcutta from the time of teenager through my um, early adult years and committed my wife and I ourselves to a life of meditation and yoga. So this notion of abstracting or of othering or of um, somehow being an Orientalist about all this. I mean, that just was never part of my intention or part of my training. And what I think we need to keep in mind with this moment in history, which is, um, you know, we used to call it the information age. We don't even use that term so much anymore because information is so 20th century and so 19th century and so Aristotelian. And with these machines, we can just put three words in and get all the information that we need from the computer. Okay, the machine does that. But what the machine cannot do is speak to the qualities of what it truly means to have a heart what it truly means to be a human in the world. So that the task of education and the task that I think Pamanab Jaini put in front of me, I invited him in the early 80s to come to Stony Brook where I was then uh, part of a, a research institute to talk about nonviolence. And the challenge that he put in front of me was to go to India and put yourself in the presence of these monks and nuns. And these monks and nuns and scholars and exemplars, if you will, have a transformative effect. 
Yeah, they may inform you about one thing or another. And I love it in India because you want an answer to a specific question and it's going to be not exactly what you had anticipated when you're given the answer. I mean, that's part of the beauty of what Amartya Sen labeled as the argumentative Indian. You know, this anekampada is just sort of hardwired all through the culture, all through the grammar. I mean, there's a fully built out way to use a verb that means, well, it could be like this, and we've got to use a whole bunch of phrases to open up possibility, whereas it's hardwired into at least the Sanskrit language that, yeah, what you may think to be the case may not be the case. And this, again, I want to just emphasize that wisdom of Pavanapjani, how do we show up in the world? Who do we choose to spend our time with? How can we become formed? How can we become transformed? And to me, that's the purpose of education and of scholarship. That uh, deeply resonates. Uh, it's probably why um, you are the only individual who has been on this podcast three times. Uh, not that I haven't deeply uh, enjoyed and learned from um, all of my guests, uh, but that maybe is a great segue into um, putting on the radar of the listeners um, something that I hope we touch on before closing in and we're about time for today. Um, part of my role at the Oxford Center for Hindu Studies is um, facilitating the development of new courses. I'm on their uh, course development board. These are all online courses, of course, uh, which, which I tutor. Um, and the question arises, what sorts of courses might be cool or interesting or useful or transformative or fruitful? And um, really there's great interest in uh, Hinduism and ecology, you know, uh, the overlap between um, Indic philosophy, ethics, and, and, and um, ecological concerns, environmental issues. And so I ended up approaching one uh, Dr. Chris Chappell <laughs> to see if he'd be interested in creating such a course for us. And such a course indeed is in the works. And so it'll be fascinating to see that course brought to fruition because there's the, obviously the scholarly piece, but part of the criteria for seeking out a scholar is not just, uh, you know, the, 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 the breadth of scholarship or, or the status or the credentials that needs to be there, but the ability to speak to people on the earth about things that matter to them, the ability to leverage what we do at the academy for something that's meaningful and practical, um, uh, to, to, to touch on, uh, partake in, or at least acknowledge the primacy of embodied experience in education, in Indic religion. And so, um, so I'm happy that you agreed to do this course. And for those of you listening, hopefully within a few months time, there'll be a brand new course at OCHS on uh, Hinduism and the environment. It's so wonderful that we're able to, through the computer, communicate globally and still have the comfort of our own place and feel that we're connecting with people that are so close and yet so far. 
Well, certainly there's no travel time. Well, <laughs> one, one, one of the boons. Um, all right, so uh, is there anything else that you wanted to say about the publication or current projects before we close for today? Yeah, I'd like to just give um, a shout out for the young people that are taking up these studies. And I see so many new scholars that are concerned about the state of the world and wanting to really make these connections between the ethical, the meditative, and the performative. And that's, that's a good trend. I think we can be optimistic looking forward. Fantastic. Um, thank you very much for speaking with me today about this book. Thank you. For those of you listening, we've been talking with Dr. Christopher Key Chapel, who is the Doshi Professor of Indic and Comparative Theology and the Director of the Master of Arts in Yoga, in yoga Studies at Loyola Marymount University. We've been speaking with him about this really fascinating um, 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 uh, volume, uh, Yoga in Jainism, just on point for this podcast, newly branded um, <laughs> new books in Indian religions. Until next time, keep uh, reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the Indian juggle. Take care. <laughs>